Hello and welcome to The Powers That Be, Puck's new podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. Welcome. First, I'll be talking to Matt Bellany about the latest beats in the Netflix Dave Chappelle controversy, how Halloween is helping Peacock, and whether NBA ratings are going to be up with the pandemic in the rear view. Then Dylan Byers swings by to discuss Disney's plans with ESPN. Will they spin off the sports giant? The consummation of Politico's sale to Axel Springer and the most up-to-date gossip on who will take over the New York Times. These are the great sort of conversations you can only have with expert insider reporters who really know what's going on, who talk to all the right people who are always breaking news. I hope that you enjoy the powers that be. I am coming to you from the Venice Bureau of Puck News. Matt, where, which bureau are you at in Los Angeles? I'm in the Cheviot Hills Bureau, which is about 10 minutes away from Venice, no traffic, or about an hour and a half <laughs> normal times. Okay, cool. I'll see you at the brig later. Uh, we talked about this last week, the big news in Hollywood, but also it's a big media story. It's a national story. It's about free speech. It's about comedy. Is Chappelle, uh, his special, The Closer, in Netflix. Uh, obviously, there's been backlash it seems like the most important backlash, given the su- success of the show uh, with viewers and the public, is from inside Netflix. There was a walkout at Netflix's headquarters in Hollywood by trans employees and their colleagues uh, and a protest outside. How much is this affecting Netflix, which typically just gets good press? I mean, they seem like a pretty steady company uh, writ large. Like, how, how on defense is Netflix this week? Yeah, I mean, Netflix has been the darling of media. I mean, it's hard to find negative coverage of Netflix. They've had a few controversies. There was that show, uh, Cuties, that documentary that was kind of accused as, uh, of exploiting children, and it became a big deal. But for the most part, Netflix has kind of scot-free glided through media over the past five to seven years. This is a big deal, but let's be clear about what this is and isn't, this is not really a business issue. I mean, if you look at Netflix's earnings this past week, they added subscribers again. They're up to about 213 million worldwide. They are the clear leader in global streaming. Uh, Their stock went up. So this is not a huge business issue for Netflix. Their subscribers like Dave Chappelle. The numbers show that people watch his specials. And there has been some subscriber backlash about the content of this particular one, but this is mostly an internal culture issue within Netflix itself and its employees and within the entertainment industry. And Netflix cares about its relationship with creative people. And on that front, they have really struggled. Uh, Ted Sarandos did a number of interviews this week where he essentially said that he screwed up in the communication of how this was messaged to the employees. He should not have equated the uh, Netflix stand-up specials to violent video games, which he said have little impact on real-world events. So thus, we should not care about hate speech within a comedy special. That led to a lot of people saying, well, wait a second. Why do we do what we do if not to impact people around the world? He said in these interviews, yes, they do believe that content can have a positive and negative impact on people around the world. So he misspoke there, but he really didn't change his position at all. They are standing by Chappelle. They believe that they are a platform for all kinds of content, some of which will offend people, some of which will offend people a lot. And hence the protest uh, from the trans employees. Yeah, I mean, this is uh, Netflix is obviously not Facebook, but Dylan, Dylan Byers made the point last week when Facebook was getting put through the ringer that, you know, fundamentally, you know, they're still making a shitload of money like the business is healthy. (laughs) You know, this is this is mostly a PR debacle. Do you know how many employees walked out? Were they only trans employees like who made up this cohort? And there was a there was also a rally outside of Netflix HQ that included a lot of supporters. Like who, how many people in the company are genuinely upset by this? We don't know exact numbers because this was mostly a digital walkout where people kind of, you know, didn't work if they're at home. Most Netflix employees are still at home. So that's adding to this weird sense of 
kind of outrage because most people are expressing themselves via social media or internal Slack channels or things like that. There was a physical protest um, that had a couple dozen people outside the headquarters. There were also pro Chappelle protesters who were saying Dave is funny and jokes are funny. Exactly. And, and kind of calling out the cancel culture stuff that we read about a lot. Um, So, you know, we don't know, but, but it is pretty clear that most, the most people I've talked to within Netflix acknowledge that this was a misstep, that this was a, you know, communication employee relations misstep, and they're going to have to atone for that. The protesters put out a list of demands that they would like to see Netflix do. Some of it is, you know, eliminating Chappelle promotion within the company's offices or its marketing materials, some of which is adding a disclaimer onto the beginning of uh, shows like this that have objectionable speech within them. Sarandos has said he's not going to do that because he's worried. um, uh, He thinks Chappelle on this instance addressed that within the special and said that this is going to be a racy, uh, a racy set. And I think they're afraid of some of the slippery slope arguments and trying to subjectively determine what speech is objectionable to enough people where they have to put a disclaimer on, which I understand. I mean, Netflix is a huge global company. The standards in different countries are different and much less uh, not even you know, talking about the standards within this country. So I, I get why they're they're objecting. They're objecting there. But, you know, Dylan's not wrong. This is a very Facebooky response that they've made. You know, uh, it's not the Facebook like, oh, we're just a platform. We don't know what's going on, that kind of thing. They Netflix does highly curate what they put on the service, but they're making a Facebooky type argument in the sense that they're saying, you know, we are not going to object. We are not going to subjectively take something down or you know uh, minimize it just because some people object to it. We are going to be all things to all people. And I think that's a Silicon Valley style response rather than some of these traditional media companies that care very much what they are putting on their platforms. Do you think any of these demands from Netflix employees, though, could come to fruition? For example, investing in trans creators, oh, absolutely. You know, hi- hiring non-binary executives, et cetera, et cetera. Those things feel actually doable and not just window dressing. Oh, I, I, I talked to an agent yesterday and agents obviously are very cynical salespeople. And he was saying, you know, we've got all we've got trans projects lined up because Netflix is the buyer right now. And I do think Netflix is going to be in the market for trans specific creators. Um, they will probably elevate trans employees. Joey Soloway, who's the creator of Transparent, which was a trans specific show that aired on Amazon outside of the protest, Joey Soloway said that Netflix should add a trans person to its board. I don't think that's going to happen unless they can identify someone immediately. But that's the sentiment here, that there needs to be better representation within Netflix. Uh, And I think that they are so sensitive about their image within the creative community that there's going to be some action on this. It won't just be lip service. It really does feel like this at the end of the day, and you wrote about this, the, the most naive aspect of this flap was the fact that they wrote an internal memo and Sarandos came out and said he didn't expect it to leak. You know, it's 20, it's 2021. We live in a highly charged political society. You know, I I work at and have worked at companies where, you know, executives put a memo out and then you read about it half an hour later on some industry blog or website. If it takes that long. Yeah, I know. Or like, or someone just clips it and posts it to Twitter or whatever. Yeah. That feels very naive for a, an executive who is sort of hailed around the industry as one of the best. Well, it's it's not actually Sarandos's policy. This is a Reed Hastings thing. Reed Hastings is the founder of Netflix. He has this philosophy that if you trust your employees, they will trust you. If you treat them like adults and tell them not to leak things, you know, at Netflix, everybody has access to salary information, to memos that other people are writing, and the expectation there is that you keep it internal. And in the past, they've had controversies that have remained internal controversies. So their thinking there is that, you know, they can trust their people not to do this. My take on this is that Netflix is now a 12,000 person company. They operate in dozens of countries around the world and they have to grow up. They have to treat their employees like they work at a real media company and say, you know what, you're you can't be trusted to keep this 
internal. It's going to leak, especially on controversial topics where you don't believe the company has fulfilled its duties to the employees. It's going to leak. And they have to take it. They have to. They have to treat every communication as if it's an external communication. Um, we'd like to keep track of box office numbers here at the powers that be, in part because it's just fascinating to watch our people going back to theaters after the pandemic, but also because there's now this, you know, dual viewing experience where you can watch a movie in a theater, but you can also fire it up on your streaming service at home. Halloween, the new Halloween movie, Halloween Kills, came out. How did it do? Uh, did about $50 million, which is excellent on a budget of $23 million, uh, which uh, it's already in profits, you know, and, and it was available on NBC's streaming service, Peacock. That was a decision they made a couple months ago. Not every movie that comes out is available on streaming. It might seem that way, but some of these big movies like James Bond or, you know, even some of these adult dramas from studios that don't have streaming services, though those have gone directly to theaters with mixed results. And people think that when movies are debuted in theaters and on streaming services at the same time, it's going to discourage people from going to theaters. I happen to agree with that. But in this case, the new flex around Hollywood is to do well in theaters and do well on streaming. And we saw Peacock shoot to number one last weekend on the App Store, which it typically is not there. Peacock is considered a lesser streaming service. It's get, it got a lot of people to check out Peacock for the first time, probably because they wanted to watch Halloween Kills. Yeah, uh, we call it we call it the cock around here. I have friends who work at NBC. We love we've all downloaded the cock because one of my friends, Gotti Schwartz, has a show on there. Although I encourage people to search for Peacock. I, I do not want to know what they get if they search for the cock. Don't search for the cock. <laughs> uh, here at the Venice Bureau, we also downloaded Peacock to watch Girls 5 Eva, which was hilarious. I, that's one of my favorite shows that I have watched this year. I downloaded it for Yellowstone, uh, which inexplicably is not on Paramount's streaming service, is on Peacock. But after we watched it, I uninstalled and unsubscribed because I just don't. There's, Why? It, Peacock is the only one I don't get. I get all the others. I just, there hasn't been anything else. Like, I don't need to watch The Office. And what else is there? Like, Girls 5 Ever, I'm sure it's great. But, like, that's not going to get me to subscribe. Like, they need they need more. They need more stuff. They need better stuff. And to be honest, like, they don't have enough kid stuff that my kid is going to be into. That's why we subscribe to Paramount Plus, because it has the, the freaking uh, Paw Patrol movie and all the Nickelodeon stuff. And that's why Disney Plus, like, grew so quickly, because the kids' library. Oh my God! Did I did my Disney Plus just came up for renewal, and it was like seventy nine dollars. That is the best seventy nine dollars I spend <laughs> all year long. That is endless hours of babysitting, and just uh, it, they could charge double. I probably shouldn't say this publicly. They could charge double, and I would subscribe. But you know, I've got a kid in that wheelhouse. Peacock isn't quite there yet. It should be, but getting people to sign up for it via a big horror movie like Halloween. Great strategy. So here's a question I have about about Peacock and, and maybe NBC in general. You know, I work at Snapchat. They've been actually a really good partner when it comes to creating digital content. They've made a lot of investments in that on the news side in particular. But as a consumer, I currently watching reruns of 30 Rock on Netflix. I watch other NBC stuff. I feel like on different platforms, like I don't sometimes understand there's a big deal made about how Peacock got the rights back to the office from Netflix, but it feels like NBC properties are scattered across Netflix and Hulu. In other words, like there's not a moat around Peacock where it's like, you have to download this to watch NBC stuff. Like even Seinfeld is now on Netflix. Like why don't they have a walled garden around their content? Are these just like old licensing deals? Yes and no. So there's a, a couple of reasons. First of all, a lot of the old NBC shows NBC doesn't own. Like Seinfeld's a perfect example. Seinfeld was Steve a Bannon Sony on show. Seinfeld. <laughs> yeah, Steve Bannon exclusively <laughs> on Seinfeld. No, there's like 10 people that own Seinfeld because the Castle Rock people and, and Sony own Seinfeld. Like NBC does not control where Seinfeld goes. So that's one part. Secondly, NBC has this relationship with Hulu via Comcast, its owner, uh, Hulu was co-owned by Fox and Disney and Comcast and Time Warner at one point. 
Now it is controlled by Disney because Disney bought Fox, but Comcast still has a deal where its shows go to Hulu. So like I'm a big SNL fan. And if I want to watch SNL the next morning because I'm old and I don't stay up uh, to watch it, then I can just go to Hulu and watch it. If that was exclusively on Peacock, there would be another reason for me to get Peacock. And a lot of these other shows are debuting on Hulu because of that deal. That's a problem for for Peacock. Um, And then, you know, they're still in this situation where these companies like money. You know, they enjoy they enjoy making their quarterly numbers. And often a way to do that is to strike a quick licensing deal like they did for 30 Rock on Netflix, make some cash. And that will allow you to make your numbers, but it doesn't allow you to build up the audience on Peacock. It's called, they call it going all in on streaming. A lot of these analysts ask, are you all in? And Netflix obviously is all in. And the feeling at HBO and Warner is that they are all in because they're making stuff exclusively for HBO Max. Disney, obviously. But I don't know that Comcast or Paramount, that they are all in on streaming yet. I mean, it doesn't. I mean, again, I'm coming at this from a journalism perspective, but sometimes it feels on the news side of some of these big companies that gesture toward streaming. I mean, CNN is launching CNN Plus soon or whatever, um, which is its like third streaming effort in 15 years. But you're going to subscribe just for Scott Galloway. I know you are. uh, No, I just I'm just going to see him post shirtless selfies on Twitter and continue to if he's posting himself. shirtless selfies on Twitter what do you think you get if you subscribe to CNN plus is he gonna do <laughs> some full Monty like what's going on there my only Scott Galloway take and I know he might be a friend of Puck I don't know but he's this dude's also like a professor just kind of weird to like post like shirtless pictures of yourself like you do have to teach classes of students um, yeah I, I enjoy his his podcast but I, I I could do without some of his social media content yeah um you know, he's also been so wrong too. He, he said that Snap and and Tesla were were basically dead companies two years ago. So, haha, Scott. Well, um, but if you are taking stock advice from podcasters, then I I do not feel bad when you lose your shirt. So NBA returned this week. I haven't seen the ratings yet, but you know, post pandemic football ratings, NFL are up. Um, playoff baseball is up. Um, in part because, you know, the Red Sox, Dodgers are going late in the season. Those are big market teams. Do you think NBA ratings will be high this season compared to last year and the previous year? I, I do, actually. I think we've seen as as crowds come back to these stadiums and the kind of eventizing of these sporting events is uh, is is more complete, that we are going to see higher ratings. Now, obviously, compared to the 2020 era sports that we are, but even with the NFL, we're seeing their, their, their games are doing better than 2018, 2019. It, it's really shocking to me because the universe of pay TV subscribers has been going down. <clears throat> and obviously, they are adding in their digital platforms on this, but the audience is for sports on digital platforms are still relatively small. The ratings on television are going up, even though the universe of subscribers is going down. So it just proves that sports is really the only thing keeping people subscribed to these cable and satellite services. Without sports, these things are dead in the water. Yeah, I mean, and we're going to talk to Dylan Byers later in the show about Disney possibly spinning off ESPN, because I have some questions about that too, because, I mean, I, I pay for cable and, you know, I'm a digital evangelist, but I, I pay for cable so I can watch uh, SEC football and 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 have so many sports available to me in a way that they might be scattered across all the different platforms. And there's no really way to to replicate that yet. At some yes. point, there will be a digital bundle or offering that gives you all the sports options you desire. There isn't currently that. Um, ESPN plus is not good. And, you know, the rights are, are still tied up with these television bundles and you can watch some NFL games on Paramount plus, but not all. And it just cable. If you, if you care about sports, it is still the best place and the best deal to get everything in one place. Yep. No. Yeah. I mean, I have friends who like say that YouTube TV is great for that, but I just still want to flip back and forth in one space between the LSU game on the SEC network and, you know, a other game on ESPN two or like college basketball. Like I 
want to watch Georgetown and then go watch Cincinnati. Like I just got to move around like, and it, I can do that on TV. Um, but I do think the live element is important to the viewing experience. I mean, I, you know, I remember even last year, I like LSU football. Um, you know, the, the season was sort of wacky. Like players were, you know, skipping the season, like whatever, but like, it, it just didn't feel the same, even on television, not having crowds there. And this isn't a sophisticated take. Everyone says this, but like when Bellinger, Cody Bellinger hit that home run in the eighth inning of the Dodgers game, game three on Tuesday, there's so many different angles of it online where you can see the crowd, like freak out. It's just like the energy is just so much more electric when there's people in the stands. And it, it I think that translates to when you're watching it, on television. Oh, absolutely. It feels like an event. And before it, it didn't listen, I was there on Tuesday at the game. It was an amazing game. And, you know, you can watch on, you can watch the clips on social media and that's a problem for sports because there is a generation of, you know, baseball in particular fans that aren't watching the games and, you know, you can see a lot on social media, but it also acts as promotion. So, you know, I, I think the NBA ratings this season will probably be up. I think that the you know, the football ratings are going to continue to be strong. These are big cultural events, and I think people are excited that they are seeing fans going nuts in the stands again. The last question I have for you on this is, you know, NFL is obviously a huge deal on broadcast television, but I feel like Major League Baseball and, and the NBA have, like, they have the app. I know NFL has um, Sunday Ticket. That's sort of hard to access, I feel like, sometimes. Well, and it's up for renewal. It's going to go somewhere else, either Apple, Amazon. One of those one of those streamers is probably going to buy Sunday Ticket. Yeah. And I did see also that Sunday Ticket was contemplating making available to fans like a single team pass. So if I want to watch the Washington football team and like I don't care about the Broncos or whatever, I can just watch those games. Yeah, um, that's interesting. I think the leagues are experimenting. Baseball is looking at something like that. Where, you know, currently you have to be tied to a cable subscription in order to watch the local team, which is airing on a regional sports network that may or may not be owned or partly owned by the team. Um, Those businesses are really challenged because, you know, cable universes are going down and the carriage fees required to justify the expense for the rights are uh, not being justified by different cable uh, companies carrying those channels. So that's a really thing. And, And MLB is looking at. Um, allowing you to watch local games without a cable subscription, which would be a huge, huge, huge deal. So I guess I know, and you just said all of these different strategies are being teased out and negotiated. But as you said earlier, analysts look at these big uh, media companies like Paramount or Netflix or whatever and say, how all in are you on streaming? Is there one sports league that is really way too over-indexed on broadcast and not all in enough on streaming? Is there one sports league that is just really all in on streaming versus any one of the others? Or are they all very piecemeal still at this point? I, I think it's it's piecemeal with everyone planning for the future. The NFL has been the best about exploiting their rights. They, um, they get the most value. They have the highest prices. They have the biggest ratings. And they have always gravitated towards where can we get the most eyeballs? And that's been on broadcast television. But they have Monday Night Football on ESPN. And they have a package of games that air on Amazon now. And they are toying more and more with that. And I think we're going to see one of the packages of big, big games eventually migrate to streaming. Um, I mean, eventually it'll all be streaming. But I'm saying in the near future... One of these streamers will step up and much like Rupert Murdoch did in the early 1990s when he was trying to build the Fox network and he said, "Okay, I'm going to overpay for football and that's going to make everyone have to carry the Fox network. Someone will do it. Probably Amazon, maybe Apple, maybe one of these others will step up and say, "Okay, we're going to put these games on our streaming service and the NFL will go along with it if they have the scale. That's the thing is Paramount Plus the CBS app, they don't have the scale. They have the rights from CBS, but they don't have the scale to move everything over and have the NFL be okay with that. Because the NFL still wants its um, its its rights. Um, they, they want the audience to be there for the game in, in large enough uh, numbers. 
And would those would those NFL rights go exclusively to Amazon or Apple or would like ESPN hold on to Monday Night Football? Yeah, that, I mean, they're going to carve it up because that's okay, where you okay. get the most value. You carve it up and you put some stuff here, some stuff there, uh, extract the most value for the owners, you know, and they, and they have modeling and they, you know, people much smarter than you and I are tracking this out and figuring out how they can get the most value out of these rights. They're in a good place. Let's just say that when you're the only thing propping up the cable bundle and the NFL is pretty much that like you are in a great place negotiation wise. Wait, Newsmax isn't propping up the cable bundle? <laughs> news news oan oan's propping up uh the uh the 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 specific bundle in in uh, parts of maricopa county arizona <laughs> uh actual last question are the dodgers gonna come back oh god this is gonna air after <laughs> the game on wednesday night um uh, so i'm really gonna be under the gun i, I think they will I, I think it'll go seven games but um you know people forget they were down 3-1 to the braves last year and they ended up winning so they're only down 2-1 as of this taping. The best thing I've learned watching the Dodgers this postseason is the Braves have a player named Dansby Swanson, who sounds like a bad guy from an 80s frat movie. Yeah, and although the Dodgers have a guy named Gavin Lux, who <laughs> I think it was someone on Twitter said he, he sounds like a villain from a Fast and Furious movie. Uh, and then you look <laughs> at him and he actually looks like a villain from a Fast and Furious movie. He's way, he's way too handsome to be a baseball player. I was going to say he looks like a bad guy surfer from like Huntington Beach. Um, <laughs> like Point Break, like some of the yeah, bad guys yeah, in Point Break. Yeah, Keanu. Or Although I think Keanu, he's from uh, Minnesota. No, he's from uh, Wisconsin, so he's not a surfer. Yeah, dude. that doesn't fit. Okay. All right, Gavin, bring it home. Uh, cool. Thanks, Matt. Thank you. Coming up, Dylan Byers joins me to talk about the future of Disney and ESPN. Why reporters at Politico might not be resting easy these days, and just who will replace Dean Bacay as editor of the New York Times. Thanks again for listening to The Powers That Be and for supporting Puck, our new company focused on the inside conversation, the plot that only the insiders know. The real story at the nexus of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood. Puck's content is great. I mean, just read my latest piece on how the Virginia gubernatorial race is gaslighting America. It's the greatest piece of journalism ever written. But we're special for another reason. We're also journalist-owned. So when you subscribe to Puck, you're supporting our team of reporters, empowering us to do the work that really matters. So check us out at www.puck.news. Joining me now on The Powers That Be is my colleague, Dylan Byers. Dylan, I want to talk to you about the newspaper of record, all the news that's fit to print, the gray lady, the New York Times. And, you know, every four or five years, it seems there is a uh, there's intrigue in the in the media and journalism business about who will take over the reins of the New York Times. Dean Bacay is currently the editor. He's had a would you say Rocky tenure as editor of the New York Times? I don't know. I would say that he, well, the funny thing is when we talk about this every four to five years is we're talking about something that folks at the New York Times, and I would say in New York media circles, care about very, very, very deeply, <laughs> but that the paper of record continues to sort of be a more or less great paper despite itself, despite all of those like internal, that, that palace intrigue and that drama. And so I would say that on the whole, the Times has been pretty successful under his watch. And, you know, look, the the rockiness, I think a lot of the rockiness has come from the fact that there is, as with almost every media organization we cover, an increasingly sort of woke activist staff that feels more and more emboldened month by month, year by year to try and uh, direct the paper's coverage. And I think he has, he has struggled to deal with that and he has not always done so perhaps as well as he, he could have, but yeah, look by and whole, he's, he's by the majority of the newsroom. He is very well liked. And I think he will leave with more wins under his belt than losses. Yeah. I guess, I guess since Howell Reigns left after the Jason Blair saga back in 2003, I would say that Dean, like Marty Baron at the Washington Post, just had more scrutiny on his leadership than than previous editors who all had scrutiny on them for different reasons because it was the Trump era, because 
you know, liberals on Twitter were always yelling, do better at New York Times headlines <laughs> that yes. went around social media. And so <laughs> he was externally in the crosshairs um, by readers in a way that I think previous editors hadn't had to deal with as much. And then to your second point, which we're going to get into, there is a generational culture clash within the New York Times, which I would say is not necessarily unique to the New York Times. It's happening in workplaces all over the country, um, but it just happens uh, more in the public view in media and especially at the New York Times. So, right. I think we all, I think, I think the New York Times being the paper of record, it's just, we care more about it there and it's on fuller display. And a lot of, a lot of those newsroom battles that tend to happen on Slack at most media organizations actually just end up happening on Twitter at the New York Times. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Dean, is there a timeline on him leaving the New York yeah. Times? Okay. He's 65. This is the famous age at which uh, a New York Times executive editor must step down. He's been given a little extra time, but the expectation among all the sources I've spoken with at the paper is that he will either leave more or less in line with, with him turning 65 last month at some point this fall, or just as likely he might uh, run this out through the summer of next year, which I don't think anyone will have an issue with. And so for listeners of the powers that be, who is who is the power that will decide who the next editor is? Is that the Sulzberger family? That is. That is A.G. Sulzberger. And and that decision is ultimately up to him. I would imagine with the counsel of of Dean, I think those two have a strong relationship. And I think that you know, I think AG has his own. He's very involved with the newsroom. He knows who the who the candidates are that he likes. But I think he'll hear he'll hear Dean out on that, and I think they'll work in concert together on that. Okay. So with all of that in mind, and I know so many people from the New York Times will be listening to this. So let's go through it. The successors. It seems like there's. According to your reporting, four top replacement options for Dean Bacay. One is Joe Kahn, uh, who is the managing editor of the New York Times. Another is Cliff Levy, um, former Metro guy, deputy managing editor. We also have Carolyn Ryan, formerly of Politico. Good politics pedigree. I think she was at the Boston Globe before Politico. And I know I don't I don't know any of these people closely, but um, <laughs> lo- lots of friends like from Politico who worked with Carolyn um, and really like her. And then the other quarter finalist, semifinalist, quarter finalist is Mark Lacey, another assistant managing editor who has been at the Times for two decades. He moderated a presidential debate. Uh, last year, two years ago. And then there's other names kicking around. Rebecca Bloomstein, Kathleen Kingsbury, Lydia Polgreen, Sam Dolnick. But it seems like there's a top four, right? Yeah, I think that's right. And those four names have been floating around there for a while. And as, as complicated as this sometimes seems, if you just look at the masthead, the names below the executive editor tend to be the ones who are in contention for that job. What has sort of brought this back up is a that that Dean Bacay will be leaving soon, and then also Gabe Snyder has started this fun newsletter called Off the Record, and he sort of put this put up an odds list, and those were the four names at the top. Where I would actually disagree with him, and disagree perhaps with the conventional wisdom that's out there about this, is that I completely agree that Joe Kahn is far and away the front runner. I think most people in the building believe he will get that job. I think he believes he will get that job. Uh, and we can we can talk about why that is. Cliff Levy, who's in second place, I don't I don't actually think that's where he is. I, I think he's much more of a long shot just in light of the fact that Joe Kahn is the favorite candidate. And the most likely outcome as I see it is this. Joe Kahn will be promoted to executive editor. Carolyn Ryan will be promoted to from deputy managing editor to managing editor uh, and will basically be his number two. And then I think Mark Lacey will... Uh, who he's been on the rise at that paper for a long time, but is too it's too soon to put him in the executive editor position. He will get some sort of promotion as well. And then I think the interesting question becomes where that leaves Cliff Levy in light of the fact that uh, he's in his mid 50s and, and probably doesn't have enough time to ride out a Joe Con tenure and still see himself become executive editor at some point. Gotcha. OK, so looking ahead to well, actually, let's look back. In the last four or five years, the New York Times has exploded as a digital company. I think they have like a billion dollars in cash. They have 
8 million print and digital subscribers. They've developed successful products like The Daily that are not your traditional newspaper. They have documentaries. Where is the Times, where should the Times be going in the next four and five years? And then why is Joe Kahn the guy to take the reins in whatever that new era holds? Yeah, that that's a great question. I mean, certainly... Uh, we should stop and should long ago have stopped thinking about newsrooms in the traditional sense of they write articles, they put those articles in print or online, and we read those articles. What you are trying to build if you're A.G. Sulzberger is a brand that becomes a fixture in people's lives and that they participate with in in myriad ways. So it's not just articles and podcasts and things like that. It is it is live events. It is merchandise. It is sort of a way of being, a way of life. You are a New York Times person. This is the same thing that NPR pursues, that the New Yorker pursues. I would just say the New York Times has become much more sophisticated at this in recent years. I think that Joe Kahn understands the nature of that business as much as he understands the editorial, uh, sort of every aspect of 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 the newsroom and of the editorial mission of the paper and, and how it can be done across multiple platforms. I would say the other place that is really significant to the Times is the global growth and the understanding of themselves as a global business. And as someone with experience in foreign reporting, I think that he has had a chance to engage with that both from an editorial perspective and a little bit from a business perspective. And I think that cues him up nicely. But the primary reason, I, I mean, that you know, the primary reason is for Joe Kahn being the front runner here. I think one, he's widely respected for what he does, and he's very good at what he does, and he has a breadth of experience at the times running different desks and sort of existing in different positions, and he's got experience in China, which is a really important theater for the paper. Cliff Levy has less of that experience. I would also say that Joe Kahn, you know, when you when you get down to who's going to lead a newsroom, at the end of the day, you are talking as much about personality and sort of management style as you are about uh, experience. And Joe, I think, is is viewed as a very sort of refined, smart, capable diplomat for the paper and a capable newsroom leader. And I think Cliff, despite being extremely smart and having his own sort of experience, is seen as being a little bit rougher around the edges. And so I think from the eyes of A.G. Salzberger, I think he gravitates a little bit more toward Joe Kahn than he would to Cliff Levy. Yeah, the global growth thing is interesting for two reasons. One, I feel like traditionally leadership of the Times has come from, you know, D.C., uh, the, the like the ranks of of politics coverage in Washington or someone who's been in New York rather than someone from overseas. And then two, I think during their last earnings call, Meredith Copet-Levy and the CEO of the company said, there are possibly a hundred million gettable New York Times readers, <laughs> you know, yeah. and, you know, certainly not in the US, but, you know, maybe overseas. But the bread and butter of the New York Times today, like in your mind, is it still in terms of editorial coverage? Is it is it international or is it like nas- national and, and political coverage? Because I do feel like, and this isn't, a, it, this isn't me advocating in any way for the advertiser business model of journalism because clearly it's failed. But, you know, as the times moved from advertising to subscription, it does feel like they are creating products and creating content for a college-educated liberal reader base. And, you know, that's... They, they want political coverage. <laughs> they want they want sort of like Trump critical commentary, newsletters, opinion columns, podcasts. Um, I think the paper itself has drifted a little to the left because of it. But it does seem that politics and, and national news is their bread and butter. Well, I do think I do think that that remains really strong to what they do. But I think they pride themselves on their international yeah. coverage as of well. Course, of course, and, of course. and certainly see, see that as. You know, Pulitzer. I mean, in fact, if there is one knock on on Joe Kahn, it would be how close he was to the the whole caliphate scandal that happened, uh, I believe, last year, and how he managed to insulate himself from from any negative criticism for that is perhaps testament to to how much they value him at the paper. But yes, look, look, both those things, and they're and they're working on multiple fronts. And at the same time, the Times is trying to be robust in in terms of its 
you know, it's cultural coverage, it's food coverage, it's, uh, you know, it's, uh, I'd say it's, they've, they've kind of dialed things down on sports here and there, but, but they're, and they're trying to be ag- as aggressive as they can across the board. And I think they are thinking about how they expand that audience. If, if you talk about a leftward drift, I would agree with that. And I would say, actually, the audience they're more concerned about now is is maintaining the center is maintain and, and, and Republicans as well. I mean, I think I think they simultaneously want to cater to, you know, the liberal sort of New York centric uh, worldview, as Jill Abramson once once put it. But at the same time, I think that they're they're scared about drifting too far to the left. They're scared about becoming too beholden to the sort of woker aspects of the newsroom and that it's important for them to maintain maintain that title of being the paper of record and being the paper of record means not being too far politically aligned. And and you're right. It should be said that a lot of the subscriber base and, and user base for the New York Times isn't even about news. Uh, it's the New York Times cooking app. It's the crossword puzzles like they are a brand larger than just, you know, the print newspaper idea that a lot of people in, in journalism think of, I think. That's right. Yeah. And then the last thing on this, and you, you've mentioned it twice, when it comes to maybe Joe Kahn or whoever takes over the New York Times, but this applies to newsrooms everywhere and, and media companies, like how much of the job is, you know, sitting in a room and deliberating over great editorial questions of what to publish and what not to publish? And how much of it is is just managing some of the generational divide in the newsroom? I mean, you have... yeah a older, more traditional, tweety, kingdom in the power era seeming, <laughs> uh, you know, veteran ivory tower journalists who went to Columbia. And then, you know, you've got sort of younger, digitally focused, more progressive journalists who want the times or at certain points over the last four or five years to say that this thing is racist and not to dance around wordplay and to, you know, just speak truth to power in a more direct way. How important is that going to be for the next editor? I think so. I think that is incredibly important, and I think that this is number one of the number one preoccupations of Dean Baquet and of the Times leadership right now. And I think in a world where they didn't feel like they needed to be so responsive to to this cultural moment we're living through, they would just name Joe Kahn the next editor and and be done with it. And I think there's some people wondering, is is he the right? Is another white guy the the right person? To lead the newsroom. And I think what you're going to see, again, is a lot of emphasis on the other promotions. Yes, Joe Kahn is, is the executive editor. He's taking that role with the blessing of Dean Baquet, who was an African-American editor. And his number two is going to be Carolyn, who's the first representative at that level from the LGBTQ community. And Mark Lacey's going to get a promotion. And he's also an African-American and you know, so forth and so on. What is so interesting to me about managing this sort of internal politics of that younger progressive staff is that, ironically, that is a role that has fallen, actually, to Cliff Levy. And so, in a way, his ability, and I, I think most people would say he's done a pretty good job handling that, in, in a way, I think that gives him a little bit more credibility, and I think that makes him a little bit more important to the newsroom. And so I think the question is, is how do you... Is there a world in which you can give Joe Kahn the top role, promote Carolyn and Mark? And by the way, we should note here, there's so much respect for Carolyn in the newsroom, I should add. And so I think people would be extremely like, like let's forget about all this, you know, diversity, women, whatever stuff. People, There are so many people in the newsroom who would be so happy to see her get promoted to executive editor and certainly to managing editor. In my era in Washington, like, political beat coverage, like, you know, being friends with Maggie and Jonathan Martin and, and Alex Burns and those folks, like everyone was very, I've never heard a negative thing said about Carolyn Ryan from the, from that crowd of people. No, 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 no. I think, I think there's, I think the respect, respect for her is widespread. And I think too, is that for all of this talk about the progressive, you know, younger folks at the newsroom and they take up a lot of media attention I think the vast majority of people who work at the New York Times are still still in the news game for the love of the story and the love of the news and being part of that that world and that they they don't actually have an agenda to push. And I think they see in Carolyn 
as they see in Joe, probably someone who is guided by a, a similar passion for and love for the news and the story and who follows that as their sort of North Star. And so I, th- I think you'd, you, you, well, you might get some protest from other corners of the newsroom. I think the, the vast majority of the newsroom would be very happy with Joe at number one, Carolyn at number two. Uh, and then the question is just, can you find a way to keep Cliff doing what he's doing there without having him feel sort of spurned and passed over a situation like what happened at Disney with Kevin Mayer, where he's like, well, if I'm not going to be CEO of this company, then I'm going to leave. And I don't know that, that I don't know. I haven't, you know, I, I think that's that's we we will wait and see. Yeah. I mean, and he's only in his 50s, I believe. So Mid-50s, you have until yeah. you have until age 65, apparently, to edit The New York Times. Then you have to go off into the dusk light speaking of newsroom leadership axel springer bought politico politico formerly known as capital politico formerly known as the capital leader <laughs> uh, in august for one billion dollars you know we've had a couple months for that news to settle in what are you hearing from the rank and file i mean you used to work at politico uh, about h- how this is landing are people worried about axel springer's view on how to create news? Are they worried about cost cutting? Um, wh- how how is this all landing? The number one thing they're worried about is the paywall. The, the Axel Springer has now said that it's going to implement a paywall, and I think there are a lot of people who got really used to writing stuff and building their brands as reporters, and they're worried about that. Look, I also I think the other thing they're wor- worried about is there's just been an enormous exodus of talent from Politico at very high editorial levels. And so the question is like, if Carrie Budoff Brown left and Paul Volpe left, this is the editor in chief and executive editor respectively, you just keep having these high level departures and they're going to places like the New York times or NBC news, you know, for a while you would think, okay, well, we'll get another great person, but, but that's happened three or four times that the Politico has gone through this cycle three and four times. And the difference now is that they're going to be owned by a company that is on the other side of the Atlantic and that wants to put them behind a paywall and probably has ambitions to build them into a larger entity at some point with the other media holdings that it has. And in fact, if you believe what what Jim Vandehei, the editor of Axios, told his staff and told his board, he wanted to... Uh, Axel Springer actually wanted to buy both Axios and Politico and combine them and make him the leader of that. So... My guess is there are a lot of, not my guess, what I hear from folks at Politico is that there are a lot of people who are sort of worried that uh, without the right leadership, Politico is on a track to becoming one of those myriad sort of hill publications we hear about that that does fine work but isn't terribly sexy or exciting or in the news, like a CQ roll call. And I think there are, there's even more anxiety now because the ownership is changing it's no longer local. And, and and then most notably, for all of those young reporters who are trying to build their brands, this fear that they're getting put behind a paywall and that they're gonna their, their work will get lost. Is another concern, uh, and, and Ben Smith wrote about the history of Axel Springer and their sort of preference for, I mean, they were early on digital um, and, you know, they seem to care about having, you know, kind of louder headlines and content that get attention so like if you work at Politico and you cover like lobbying and energy or defense or like Raytheon, like are they worried that there's going to be some office space situation where, you know, some bean counter comes in and says, what do you do here? Like we're looking for more content about how Kirsten Sinema got chased into a bathroom with video. Yeah. And the tr- I, I, you know, I, I wish I knew the answer to that question, but I don't know. I don't know exactly where Axel Springer's ambitions lie and how much appetite they have for that sort of very focused niched Washington coverage. I would guess based off of the money that that Politico Pro makes for Politico that they're probably interested in sustaining that business. I mean that's that yeah, everything I have learned about Politico over the years is that Politico Pro is actually a really valuable asset for them. Uh before I move on to the next thing, like th- this is this sort of gets my goat a little bit. When you worked at Politico, did you get any kind of equity like did people, did any journalists actually get paid out from this acquisition? No, I don't that think sucks. that. I don't think. Um, no, it was all Robert. I don't think that the founding editors Jim and Jim Vandehei and John Harris got equity. 
No, I really mean that. I, I don't think, I think <laughs> like it was, it just, it was Robert's baby and he poured a ton of money into it and, and some, you know, managed, managed to come out with actually a really great sale for him. But I think all that money's going and going to one place. No, I know. I mean, and that, that makes sense that, you know, and they were losing money for a long time and he put money into it. It's just working at a tech company now. It's like journalists put so much <laughs> sweat into the product over 10, 15 years and like it gets sold for a billion dollars. And it's like, cool. Thanks for that. That's why we joined Puck. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're eyeing a $5 billion exit by the end of the year. Um, yeah, I heard Axel Springer wants to buy us for <laughs> $400 billion. <laughs> The last thing I want to talk to you about real quick is you reported this week uh, a very big story, which is that Disney is considering spinning off ESPN, which to me as a consumer, like I understand the value of streaming. Um, but you know, I, I was talking to Matt Bellany about this earlier. I subscribe to cable for sports and yeah. ESPN is a huge part of that experience for me. And I assume they make a shitload of money for Disney too. So why would Disney want to get rid of something extremely precious like ESPN, which a lot of people think is like the only reason people subscribe to cable at this point. Right. Well, let, let me just start by saying, just so we're really clear about where Disney is at here. Okay. Is yeah. They are exploring, this is the language, they're exploring the strategic rationale for spinning off ESPN. And that does not mean that they're exploring a spinoff. It does mean that in a departure from everything that happened up until Bob Chapek took over the company. They are now they now want to see if it's something that they should do because the market and the private equity world and industry analysts are all telling them that this is something they should do. And well, where Bob Iger said that will never happen under my watch, Bob Chapek, who's less sentimental about the world of sports and broadcast television, is saying, look, we're going to do what's best for the business, period, end of story. So let's explore it. That's where they're at. Now, the logic there is that the the North Star for Bob Chapek as the leader of Disney is not I'm not being too callous here is moving the stock. And I don't mean that in a short term way, but he needs to focus on the growth of the company and generating value for shareholders, not just in the short term, but over the long term. And when we when we published that report, the stock jumped just on just that they were open that, that that they were exploring the strategic rationale the stock jumped by 2% and the reason for that is to answer your question is that yes ESPN generates a lot of money and they don't break it out from the rest of the TV divisions but they do something like 20 to 30 billion in revenue every year and they generate 7 to 8 billion in profit every year the re, that sounds like a lot of money and it is the problem is the, the issue is not necessarily revenue or profit. The issue is growth. And that is not a growth business. And Linear is, is, as you and I both know very well, is a declining business. And so the street looks at that money and says, I, I, we don't care what the, what the revenue or the operating income is. We care what the growth is. And it is a zero to no, no to low growth business, Linear Television and, and, and sports on Linear. And so... You look at a deal with like the NFL, for instance, where ESPN is locked into a linear to an agreement to broadcast that stuff on cable for eight to 10 years. And you're thinking, well, God, we can't we can't value you the way we would value Netflix because Netflix is not tethered to that sinking ship. And so I think what Chapek is trying to explore and trying to figure out is if we just cut ties with the linear business entirely Will the street then value us at a multiple similar to the multiple they give Netflix? And will that allow us to just fly in terms of, of value and, and capital and, and then just go all in on streaming? And it is so clear that that's what the street wants them to do. Now, I think what's holding them back from this is, well, sports are incredibly popular and at some point, sports are going to make the jump to streaming wholesale, probably is my guess, or at least they're going to find a way to live on linear and streaming at the same time. And the question is, 
does our claim on sports and ESPN as the worldwide sports leader, does that give us an edge over the likes of Netflix who are not in the sports business? And and do we have a way to generate more, grow more subscribers by virtue of the fact that we have sports? And that is the calculation I think they're working through right now. I thought it was amazing reading your piece. I didn't know this. I don't own stock in these companies, but Disney's stock is at 174 a share and Netflix is at 633 a share, which is wild to me because Disney is such like a known brand that's been around forever and like bleed, like just like makes money hand over right. fist. Um, that, but yeah, I mean, your explanation makes sense. Yeah. And you, you know, you have to look at like, like stock is different depending on the volume of the stock and all that. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I, what I know from the sources I've spoken with pretty high up current former Disney folks Bob Chapek really is focused on that number. And the stock at one point got up around 200. And then now it's kind of settled at 170, 175. And I think every day there's a question of how does Netflix just continue to soar and soar? And just in terms of pure market cap, Netflix is catching up with Disney. What do we need to do? And I think he's growing increasingly interested in the question of is our best answer here to spin off the linear business. And that means spinning off ESPN. For succession viewers listening to the powers that be, Bob Chapek is the Tom of Disney. He came out of the parks and resorts <laughs> part of Disney. Um, Man. And now, now is a content I guy. I don't know if Bob Chapek's a subscriber or was a subscriber, but I think he just canceled. Uh, <laughs> um, a, qu- a, a quick question I have on this um, in part because I have friends there. Why would Disney be thinking about spinning off ESPN, but not like ABC News. Like, Well, so yeah, so it, it gets complicated. And there's a very good chance that the next logical question is, well, should we spin off ABC too? And is there a pack, you know, what can we do there? But in terms of the other linear businesses, they have value for a streaming service that is a streaming service pure play because a their existing content can migrate much more easily to streaming. Also, what makes these properties most valuable to Disney are the studios, because the studios, Fox Studios, Disney Studios, can continue to produce content, and they and all of that content can live on streaming. And you need to have good, robust, powerful studios in order to feed the streaming beast. So, so that's where ABC gets a little more complicated. I mean, you look at FX, which is a Disney property. FX, the the best content it has already lives on Hulu. So that that's sort of the future of those properties. The the thing that makes sports so hard to migrate to streaming is that the reason that sports makes so much money for these companies is because the, the they get into these decades long rights agreements with the leagues. And the requirement that the leagues have is that this stuff live on linear. It's also what the, what the media companies want because they continue to make a boatload of money there. But it's not a growth business. It's a business that's in decline. And they have to figure out – some streaming services are going to figure out how to put sports on streaming and really really invest heavily and, and own that space. I think Warner Media Discovery under David Zaslav is one that's going to do that um, most notably globally. But it, it's just a question of whether or not Disney wants to do that or they want to go into the – like pure Disney plus Hulu lane and really complete compete with Netflix on that front. Something that made me kind of angry reading your piece actually was a section about ESPN becoming uh, not just a sports brand and broadcaster, but with the explosion in, in gambling and wagering, you know, a global kind of sports book, which would be mad because I'm a Reds fan. Pete Rose is banned from the Hall of Fame for gambling. And we see it already, like even during the playoffs for baseball, like there is there are gambling ads uh, on the field. And they, the idea that ESPN would be this sort of clearinghouse for not just watching sports and broadcasting sports, but also like becoming a, a hub for sports betting. I mean... Lucrative, yes, but you know, a little gross to me. <laughs> right. Well, so but so here's what you're, and I I don't my Pete Rose history is not strong enough to uh, to weigh in on that. But what I will say is this: you saying that that sounds gross to you is exactly why ESPN cannot <laughs> become a sports book at Disney, because Disney is the brand that when my kids come of the right age, they will become obsessed with Marvel characters and Frozen and 
cars and all that fun stuff and then Star Wars and eventually The Simpsons because it is impossible, almost impossible, to be a kid in this country and in many parts of the world without Disney. And that is the great strength of Disney. It is a family-centric brand that owns your children and has managed to age up with them. And if you all of a sudden become affiliated with a sports book, then the Disney brand gets bogged down in all of this stuff about gambling and gambling addiction and corruption. And it's not it's not that polished family centric brand that it has been for so long. That is why if you spin it off and then you've got ESPN with a decade of rights to Monday Night Football and rights to basketball and hockey and all this other stuff, you can turn it into a sports book without hurting the brand of Disney and turn it into a really robust business. And I would say if if, if sports betting feels icky to you, I, I get ready because that is the future of all like. Oh, yeah, I know I that know, I that know. is everything. And everyone, every you, if you are going to go into your favorite sports bar in Ohio or in California, and people will be having their phones out and they will be placing micro bets on every pitch, on every free throw, on every on every field goal kick. And uh, I don't I don't know if that's a better or worse world, but that is the world we are headed. Yeah, for. no. And I, I don't have my head in the sand about that at all. But, um, you know, just the, the Pete Rose guy in me was a little cranky about it. That's all. All right, Dylan. Thanks, man. Go break some more news. Thank you, Peter. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. Do not accept anything else. We'd like to thank Eric Johnson of lightningpod.fm, our partner, for his support. And thanks, too, to Liz Goff and Ben Landy for their production help. I'm Peter Hamby, and I'll see you next week.